You have toe COVID. <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> I have COVID in my toe. The History in Polium and Pals podcast in association with the History Corner.org podcasts, articles, reviews. Greetings. One must not get one's knickers in a twist. London's burning, London's burning. Fetch the engine, fetch the engine. Fetch the engine, fetch the engine. Fire, 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 fire. Pour on water, pour on water. Hello and welcome to the History Emporium and Powers podcast. This is the second part to a two-part episode on the Stuarts. I'm once again joined by Chris Riley. Now Chris, I'm sure everyone by now knows who you are, but hey, would you like to introduce yourself anyway? I can do, yeah. Uh, I am Chris Riley. Um, you can find me at Riley underscore on Instagram. Um, I also kind of uh, co-own slash... Uh, run the historycorner.org website. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at the History Corner blog, um, where myself, Ollie, and loads of other people uh, kind of just share uh, history stuff, whether it's general articles or book reviews, film reviews, game reviews, whatever it is, uh, you could find it there. But yeah, that's me. Wonderful. I love a plug. Love a plug. Um, I have, yeah, it's great. I've written two articles for the historycorner.org. Um, those of you that don't know, we've kind of partnered up, so we're kind of sort of sponsoring each other, I guess, um, through your work and my work. So, yeah, so far so good. It's a nice little collaboration going on. So I hope everyone else Absolutely. is enjoying it as much as we are. Yeah, yeah, it's been really good fun. And uh, Ollie's articles are definitely worth checking out, along with all the other stuff we have on there. But, yeah, certainly check out those. I am definitely the smut of the history corner.org. Um, it's what we need. Everyone, we need everyone some... else's articles are very sort of well written and well um, constru- <laughs> constructed, and mine's all about drugs and sex and um, yeah, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so uh, we need some post watershed content. It's it's mm, fine. There's more to come as well. We've got drag queens coming of yes. the Victorian age. So as soon as I write that, I will get it out there. Um, anyway, back to the Stuarts. So, the the Stuarts is such a long period of time that we decided to split the episode in two. So, we left it at, um, Oliver Cromwell, I believe, last hmm. time. Um, so I'm going to hand over to you and we're going to kind of take it from there. Yeah, um, obviously Cromwell is, as we know, one of your most favourite people from history. Hmm. Um... <laughs> So I think last last time we, we, we spoke about his life a little bit and who he was, but it'd be a good place to kind of kick off would be the kind of the death of Oliver Cromwell and the succession of his son, Richard, uh, and his very, very short-lived um, reign, we'll call it. Yes. So I'm not going to spend huge amounts of time talking about the Cromwell family because I don't enjoy it <laughs> particularly. Um, it's a part of the... Uh, the 
the topic that that doesn't sort of pique my interest. So mm. um, we're going to cover the basics here. So um, upon the death of Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell, Richard Cromwell, his son, um, inherited the title Lord Protector. Now, this caused some controversy because um, the whole idea of Oliver Cromwell and the being Lord Protector and there not being a hereditary system was, so why should his his son automatically inherit the title Lord Protector. So Oliver Cromwell, as sort of in my opinion, was was king by everything but name. So um, Oliver Cromwell died on the 3rd of September 1658 and Richard was informed on the same day that he was to succeed him. So Cromwell had not... An, had not officially given the succession to his son, but that there was no contingency plan, so no one kind of knew what would happen next after Oliver Cromwell. So it seemed the best idea for it to go to his son, Richard. Um, now, Richard was very different to Oliver. Um, Richard uh, was not kind of a born leader he was uh, a bit timid a bit shy um he wasn't athletic like his father um he kind of when he inherited he was kind of faced with two problems so um the first was the army so it was questioned why he should be in a position as a commander um because he had no military experience um, and the second was the financial position that the regime was in. So the debt of fighting these wars and executing a king, etc., was huge. So there was no money there. So there was no money. There was no leadership to sort of jolly everyone on. Um, he was, like, Richard was not seen as, as domineering as his father, Um so, very long story short, the Royalist movement gained traction again in 1659, and he was essentially forced to resign, and he fled to France in 1660, um, never to see his wife again, apparently. Um, oh. Yeah, which is, is sad. sad. Yeah. Um, he, he wasn't... They, so, so when the monarchy was restored later on, which I'll talk about later on, he, um, he wasn't sort of hunted down. He was kind of left to live in, like a bit of a quiet sort of subdued life. Um, mm. and he he actually came back to England because he died in Hertfordshire in England. So he was allowed to come back, and kind right. of slip into living a quiet life, and he kind of falls off the record from there. So, um. That's Richard, um, in a nutshell. Because wow. yeah, because he's he's a character that you you know you may or may not have heard of, Richard Cromwell. He's he's kind of a bit of an enigma, really, isn't he? Because obviously his, his dad was super famous and you know big bad Oliver Cromwell, and then his son is like, oh yeah, very. He kind of has like a meek and mild history to go with his, I assume, meek and mild personality. Um, but yeah, what a, what a f- funny little dude. Um, so you mentioned briefly about Cromwell being kind of forced to, for lack of a better word, abdicate or resign. 
how did we get to the point that the monarchy, after just what eleven years, ten, eleven years, was a considerable option again? Why, why, how, and why did we get to that position? So Oliver Cromwell, when he brought in all of his um, his his laws and his very um, simplistic Protestant views, everything mm. was kind of stripped down. So everything that was kind of fun in the country sort of died a death. Um, and when Cromwell died, people were talking about actually how it was better in maybe a uh, wearing rose-tinted spectacles, thinking, oh, it was better when we had a monarch, wasn't it? We could do this and we could do that. And it was mainly from the high society. So the high society that had money and had... Um, sort of influence it was them that kind of suffered the most under Cromwell because they couldn't do anything fun they had all this spare time and no sort of fun things to do whereas before they could gamble they could uh, sleep with whoever they wanted they could do this that and the other but under Cromwell that kind of wasn't a thing so traction gained again with the royalist movement and we're like do you know what actually maybe we should we should bring this back because mm. like Cromwell was the face of this parliamentarian um era and when he died like everything kind of died with it yeah so that's when we have the reintroduction of um the monarchy so um Charles the 2nd uh who is son of Charles the 1st we know who lost his head um he was only sort of backtracking slightly here. So he was only 12 when the civil war began. Um, and he was uh, appointed commander in chief in Western England. So when the parliamentarians and the royalists were sort of having their to do's and having their fights, etc., um, that went on and on and on, as we know, um, he, uh, he's, he he led a he led a battle and he basically lost and um, with the parliamentary victory he was forced into exile himself on the continent so he lived in the Netherlands um, and that's where he was when he found out that his father had been killed so James the first had been killed in 1649 so that's a little bit of a wow. background to who. Charles the second is now he gets this really interesting title of um the merry monarch now mm. I did some research obviously into this um and on the face of it yeah quite merry quite fun after all these years of, of Oliver Cromwell but actually still not that great there's obviously something in the Stuart blood that they think they're better than a lot of people, <laughs> so um, and they 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 can they can annoy people quite easily. Um, so the whole the whole time that Cromwell was in power in England, Charles II kind of did a deal with the Scots. So he was the King of Scots before he was the King of England, um, and upon Cromwell's death and Richard sort of being exiled. Um, Charles then was declared king in England and he was able to reclaim his throne, which would have been his in the first place, 
um, but mm. probably at a different date and under different circumstances. Um, but yeah, as we know, his father was was executed, so it kind of took a roundabout route, but he got there in the end. Yeah, what a what a strange turn of events for little Charlie boy. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, I just wanted to go over the reasons why he's uh, known as the Merry Monarch. Mm, so, go for it. That's about the only thing I know about him is he's known as the Merry Monarch and yeah. he has curly hair. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a wig. It was a big yeah. wig. Yeah. Uh, so he brought back fun into high society. So um, drinking, dancing, feasts, um, sort of sleeping with who you wanted to, I guess. Um it was all very incestuous, as we know, at the top. But yeah, it was it was fun again um, for the high society. Um, people lower in the ranks probably wouldn't have felt any different because they always kind of get left behind. But um, yeah. uh, so there was kind of like a sigh of relief from the country um, as everything that was banned was kind of unbanned. So. You could party and be jolly and and celebrate your um, religious festivals and yeah, it was all pomp and ceremony. So mm. um, he also interestingly got theatres uh, back up and running, and he actually made it legal for women to be on stage in plays. So before that, women had to be played by men because women were. Um, well, women could clearly not act as women, <laughs> which is very clearly. bizarre. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he brought back, uh, so he brought back plays and theatre and, and it was legal for women to be on, on stage for the first time ever. Um, wow. I think one of the, uh, one of his main characteristics, uh, especially from the outside, he was very fashion conscious. So he, um, he had taken lots of uh, inspiration from the continent and he kind of brought it back to England. So whereas over under the Cromwell years, it was kind of drab and a bit dull, like all of a sudden he's wearing these massive wigs and this um, glistening gold um, threaded clothing. And, and yeah, it, he used to wear high heels. It was... Yeah, he was he was wild. Like you'd see him, like walk in the door, mm. like he would glisten, and then obviously court followed on, and they they would kind of dress to be like the king. Um, but it kind yeah. of all stemmed from Louis the Fourteenth in France. He was also known as a um, fashion um, connoisseur, I guess. Um, so yeah, his fashion was was mad and over the top. Um, and he was all, always kind of ready to be on show to people. So he was a he was a natural kind of performer. He would engage with people. Um, but I think behind closed doors, he was very different. But he he was very much. I am a man of the people. I need to be seen. Sort of all the errors his kind of father made. He was trying not to make them. Um, yeah. And he did it in style, so I guess that's why we call him the Merry Monarch. Yeah. yeah, I've got a lot of time for any any man that's able to wear heels. As a as a very small man myself, I I toy with the idea every now and again of doing going down the Prince route and getting a, getting you a should, little pair of you should do it. 
heels maybe yeah yeah i don't think i i've i've completely off topic i've worn my girlfriends before and i thought i did pretty well i i probably didn't but i'm like nah i could do this what was her I verdict this, i got this down um she was just laughing at me as she often does um because <laughs> i am like the court jester in my own home not intentionally i don't juggle or say jokes i'm just i'm just funny to look at um but uh, but yeah charles ii sounds like a sounds like the you know sounds like a bit of a party boy and i've got i've got a lot of time for that he sounds sounds like someone you'd you'd, you'd want to have over for tea at least yes well if you were on the right side of him so we kind of need mm. to talk about his revenge plan for all those that had signed charles the death warrant so he was coming back although he was a merry monarch he was coming back and he was coming back for revenge um how dare they kill his father rightly yeah. so i think i'd be yeah. annoyed <laughs> as well um so he's back in charge now and boy did he go to town on all of these people so oliver cromwell's body was actually dug up hung drawn quartered along with all of those that were still living and had been the downfall of his father so he made wow. a public display and he was like yeah cromwell might have died before my succession however this is what happens when you mess with my family. Um, wow. It was kind of like I, this. I appreciate sup- yeah. the level of pettiness and just sheer revenge in that. Like, the dude's dead and buried, literally, and yet he still thought, nope, this guy's going to die a traitor's death. Mm-hmm. Wow. Like, I mean, I th- like you said earlier about something about the Stuarts, the Stuart family um, believing in, you know, the divine right of kings and believing that they are well above everybody else. This is kind of another example of that, like, how dare you think you can literally, you know, remove my dad's head and then sit in his throne? You know, uh, yeah, that's uh, yeah. that's very definite. Yeah, 100%. And Cromwell's head was left on a spike uh, in full view to everyone for months and months after they'd done this. So it was a, it was a symbol like, I am back. Don't mess with me. <laughs> um, Cromwell's sort of supporters were stripped of all their lands and property as well and it was redistributed to the supporters of the monarchy um cool so yeah everyone back to the status quo is kind of reintroduced and everything kind of went back to how it was before yeah yeah in yeah it sort of moved on but the 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 institution was kind of back um so after all of this had happened, um, Charlie Boy had uh, he kind of signed a policy um, of political tolerance and power sharing. So mm. he kind of reluctantly gave up a little bit of his power. So nothing. It was it was kind of it was to try and settle the Catholic, Protestant, monarchy, Parliament issue that had been going on for ages. So mm. he he signed this sort of thing saying that that yeah that's fine like but I don't I think he signed it to to, to shut them up really mm. um he still believed that he was um uh, like a divine king like he should have been there yeah. um he he had 
a mass. Although he was Protestant, he had a ma- massive leaning towards Catholicism. Um, yeah. Uh, and he made like several attempts to formalize um, tolerance of Catholics, um, mm. but this was sort of um, strongly opposed by Parliament. Um, yeah. And this went on and on and on but overall charles is known as is quite a good king quite a fun king he brought the monarchy mm. back to the masses really so um yeah, yeah there, there was nothing particularly when i was researching that i found about charles that i didn't like um he seemed Although he was quite um, over the top, possibly, with his revenge plans. Um, mm. We don't know what was going through his head at the time, do we? Yeah. So, um, yeah, potentially that's a bit of a low point. But apart from that, um, mm. I think he's doing okay. I guess, yeah, I guess it's it's a topic we've touched on briefly in other episodes, like... Childhood trauma must be very real for Charles II in in a sense that, you know, like you said, he was he was a 12-year-old, he was a kid, you know, leading an army more in name than anything else. But, you know, leading an army, probably seeing men die in front of him, to then be exiled, to then learn that his father's been executed. While all the time he's being fed all this information about the divine right of kings and you're, you're meant to be king, you're da-da-da-da-da. This is definitely going to affect him massively in his life and it's actually surprising that he didn't go any further than he did um but uh again another another interesting kind of case study for history you know how much did the the early years of charles ii affect his his reign yeah i mean famously um in all high society but especially monarchy um children and their parents have a very strange Mm. sort of cold relationship um and that's yeah that's gonna do some damage especially if you, like you said you're forced to do this that and the other um yeah very very traumatic um and obviously we're, we're not comparing it too much but you see a lot of um abusers if you look back in their childhood they were actually abused themselves so yeah. It's sort of like the the circle of circle of abuse, I guess. Um, mm. But yeah, overall, he turned out okay. Um, so, so where do we go from Charles II? Obviously, Charles is reinst- reinstituted as as king. Uh, how long does he rule for? Um, and then who who kind of takes over from him? So I'm going to get to that a little bit later on. But there's stuff that happened between. Um, so so while he was on the throne. So I want to kind of right. jump to this topic that we've kind of spoken about quite a lot. <laughs> the plague, uh, if we haven't had enough. Say, <laughs> I'm assuming it's, this is going to be plague talk. Um, yes. Yeah, because I think it's the one event that most people know when they think about the 17th century. You know, you think of like the gunpowder plot and then the plague of 1665, like... Obviously, that's pretty much straight away as soon as Charlie Boy gets back. So, this was, as I'm assuming, quite a quite a big thing for for the monarchy and for the country as a whole to deal with. Yeah. So, if we haven't had enough play talk, 
we're going to talk more about plague. <laughs> um, awesome. So, uh, yeah, as as we said uh, previous episodes, we've kind of concluded that the Black Death um, is the same type of plague. Um, it's just in a slightly mutated form. Um, so this mm. plague started in 1665, and the illness spread quickly. So... Um, when I think of the plague of this era, you get these images of the the plague masks. Now, if no one's seen them, they they're kind of like beaks, aren't they? Like um, mm. sort of leather based uh, masks with massive beaks in, and and they were for the doctors that were going to go round and see people because they knew that it was infectious. Um, but they were still relying under the the four humour system. So bad mm. smells was one of them. So the the whole reason for that peak was to put sort of good smelling stuff in the in the end of it. So the good smells would would um destroy the bad smells. Basically. So that's why they're that shape. But they're terrifying. Um I actually dressed up as a plague doctor before we had COVID. Um yeah, uh, um, I, I would like to see evidence of that. that yeah, be, I mean, I've still got the mask now. Awesome. It's sitting on top of my wardrobe. So, I oh, I should have recorded <laughs> this whole episode in the plague mask in, as a plague doctor. Yeah, that that would have been that's that's commitment to your craft. That that would be amazing. Um, so yeah, the plague masks. Um, I think of red crosses on the doors. Um, Corpses piled up everywhere. So these are all the images that are kind of imprinted in our head from school. Um, especially if you're in the south of England, which I was. Um, yeah, our history is very centralised to London, which is great in a way, but a shame in another. Um, mm. I mean, we know that I love the macabre. And just on a side note... As a bit of a, a joke with my friends, um, I would always say that we are due a plague. Like I instant, <laughs> yeah, I instantly regret that now. So, um, yeah, I, I basically would would say that to anyone that would listen. Um, and yeah, it's uh, so I'm I, I'm I'm not taking responsibility here for COVID. By the way, I'm just saying that I would say this for a long time. Um, and then it happened, and then yeah, very bizarre. Um, so anyway, sorry, back to the plague. Um, it cool. was the uh, worst out- outbreak in England since the Black Death, um, which we spoke about on a previous episode. Um, London mm-hmm. lost fifteen percent of its population. Wow. So that's quite a lot considering not many people lived there at the time. It's still a big city, but it's nowhere near the size that it is now. Um, so 15% of the population was lost. Um, the earliest case was diagnosed in spring 1665 in a parish just outside the city walls of St. Giles in the field. Um, so the death rate began to rise uh, during the hot summer months and peaked in September when 7,165 Londoners died in one week. Wow. Yeah. That's, um, like you said, population-wise, it's it's much smaller than it is today. So that that number is actually deceivingly low, isn't it, really? I mean, sorry, mm. deceivingly high. Yeah. Um, that's um, That's awful. Yeah. 
So again, from other episodes, we know that rats carried the fleas that caused the plague. Um, the, London at this time was dirty. Um, there was streets filled with rubbish, waste, um, especially in really poor areas. Uh, drinking water was poor. Um, you've got to think a lot of horse and carts were around. So there was obviously horse poo on the roads. It was gross, to be honest. Um, yes. Yeah, it doesn't sound nice. Yeah, not, not and pleasant. The and then the plague. Yeah. Um, but obviously the rats are there because there's food. So people are dropping mm. their their sort of food waste or carcasses of chickens and what have you. Um they kind of, when they kind of knew that the plague was serious, so the the nobility that were living in London, including lawyers and merchants, fled the city, surprise, leaving all the poor to sort of suffer. Um mm. Parliament was actually um moved to Oxford because of the plague. Um, and court cases were also moved from Westminster to Oxford. So, all of a sudden, London was not the seat of power anymore. It kind of moved over to Oxford because people were right. terrified that they were going to get sick. Um, so, the 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 symptoms of the bubonic plague, again, we've been over this, but it's relevant to this story. So, you get swellings that are called buboes, Um and they tend to go in your armpit, groin, and neck. Um, plague sufferers experience headaches, vomiting, fever. They had a um, 50% chance of dying within two weeks. Um, so kind of, it was a death sentence. Yeah. yeah. Mm. If you got it, that was that was it. <laughs> you, were, you were gone. Yeah. There was also symptoms of um, uh, sort of difficulty breathing. Coughing, sneezing, sound familiar. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, so it was basically a blood poisoning in the end that could um, that could kill you. So very, very oh. grim. Um, mm. Now, the plague itself didn't actually last that long in the grand scheme of things. Mm. So it lasted... Um, from 1665 to 1666. Now we'll get on to the uh, the events of 1666. Um, a, a lot of people wrongly think it was the Great Fire of London that kind of stopped it and killed it. Um, it was dying anyway before that. Before this happened, um, mm. it was um, it was theorised that that the rats. Uh, the, there was kind of like a mutation and the rats were developing stronger genes that would stop it jumping from one rat to the next, right. to the next, to the next. Um, so it was kind of naturally taking its own course. Um, but yeah, a very grim, grim plague and one that kind of springs to everyone's heads. The uh, The plague, just in general. If you say the plague, that's what you think of. Yeah, no, definitely. It's one of the. Um, it's probably more well known and more taught than the Black Death, even though the Black Death was was worse and and more devastating. It's it's definitely the plague of 1665 that you're taught at school, especially you know in the UK or in England anyway. Like, 
And it's definitely the one that coming into this, I feel most people will uh, be vaguely aware of. Oh yeah, the bubonic plague, you know, yeah. the, the one in the whatever year, because people might not know the year, but um, yeah, it, um, it doesn't sound very pleasant at all. No, very, very, very grim. And also you'd see like a massive physical change in somebody as well. So whereas we've kind of got the silent COVID that is kind of going around mm. um, and you're kind of not getting any physical symptoms, like to look at someone you wouldn't know, which is probably just as dangerous, if not more so. Um, but with But with these people, you would see you would see growths from their body starting. Yeah. So you would know. Horrible. Yeah. Mm. You would know that their their bodies were changing. And yeah, very grim. Very grim indeed. Very, very grim. Um, so you briefly touched on the other kind of main event of the 1660s, let's call it, the, the Great Fire of London, which up until about two minutes ago, I believed was the cause or the end of the of the bubonic plague, but you know, do, apparently that's not the case, uh, which is which is new. Uh, every day is a school day. But do you want to just talk a little bit about the the Great Fire of London and 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 what that kind of meant? Yeah. So um, I don't think we can call any fire great. Um, the word "great" kind of refers to the size rather than it being mm. an amazing fire. One. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so everyone or most people in the UK would have known that the Great Fire of London started in Pudding Lane in 1666. Um, the reason it's kind of easy to remember is I remember people saying, oh, it's the sign of the devil, 666, 1666, fire, all that kind of stuff. Um, so where the Great Fire of London uh, was said to have started uh, now there's a monument called inventively the monument um which is uh in a place close to where the fire started so it's there for everyone to go and see you can go up to it you can look at it you can see pudding lane um it looks obviously very different because it burnt down um, in 1666 but yeah they kind of wanted to mark the place where London was said to have modernised, I guess, after this, after this fire. So, um, firstly, this was not the first fire in London. There had been several before. London was actually all cities were almost constantly on fire. You've got to think about um, what I shouldn't laugh at. I know. Fire instruction, <laughs> You've got to the thought of a constantly on fire city is, is mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've got to remember what the the buildings were made of. Um, a lot of timber. Um, mm. We had the the houses that, that jetted out, so um, you'd have a plot of land that was potentially quite small. Um, but the way to get more space was to build up, and uh, the second floor you could build it slightly over the street, and then slightly over again the next floor. Um, so it would almost be like a consultina of housing. So housing was practically touching um, from side to side. Uh, straw, all very flammable materials. Um, mm. There was no lights, so everyone was doing everything by candle in the night. 
um bakers and and butchers and that would would run kind of 24 hours so so candlelight was needed um animal fat was made uh into candles um it would spit drip crackle um it would if it if it if it crack crackled it would leap into the poorly maintained buildings and then a fire so mm. it wasn't uncommon yeah it was just the scale of this fire that caught everyone's attention and which is why it's now taught in schools and um because mm. it changed the landscape of london and britain completely mm. um so, as we know, people were not aware uh, aware of the dangers of fire. Um, so it was kind of like a perfect storm when this happened. So it had been a really long, dry summer. Um, and the city was suffering from a drought. So water was already scarce. Um, yeah, wooden houses has kind of dried out. So yeah, really, really easy for it to burn and in 1666 there was no um there was no fire brigade and there was no like firefighting was really basic so it was basically buckets of water like people would standing in a lot in a line passing water from one person to the next to the next to the next and so on and so forth but yeah Mm. they're, they're in a drought as i say um so uh, the Great Fire of London started on the 2nd of September in 1666 in a baker's shop on Pudding Lane. Um, so they reckon the fire started from some embers that had fallen onto the straw um, floor and it had kind of gone up from there. Um, it quickly spread uh, and this was due to um, winds as well. So it, it 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 was dry, there was no water, and it was windy. So it spread. At first it sort of stayed um, contained to a couple of streets. Um, but when they realised that actually this is not stopping, um, and it was going to affect not only the poor, but the rich as well, um like really dramatic things had to happen to try and stop the fire. So buildings were literally pulled down to try and stop the fire getting like jumping from the next building. Mm. So um, you imagine like this fire is burning and you're a couple of streets away and you're the link between one street and another. You get a knock on the door saying like, get out. We need to rip your house down chaos absolute chaos mm. so like um, you said it really really was the perfect storm wasn't it like mm. you couldn't really get a situation much worse than the the summer of 1666 really absolutely and the 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 fire kind of lasted for three days um and it was believed to have destroyed um 70,000 homes in the city wow um So a lot of people don't know, there's actually two cities in Greater London. So Westminster Mm -hmm. is one city and the City of London is actually another city. And then you've got Greater London, which covers the two. Um, Luckily, it hadn't made it to the the south of the river, um, purely because the bridge had had damage to it. So it couldn't get across the water 
to the south side. So the south side was safe. Um, but if you ever look at any paintings um, of the, the the fire, it's... I mean, it must have looked like something out of hell. Um, mm. If you're thinking a lot of people are still quite religious. Yeah. Um, do you know... Question. <laughs> do you know... Um, how many people were said to have died in... Um, so it's either one or none, and I can't remember. So it's a little bit higher than that. It's it's low, though. It's really low. So the yeah. verified deaths of this three-day burning of London was said to have killed only six people. Oh, now... I, I generally thought it was none... But six is still much better than it kind of, not should have been, but definitely could have been. Well, so like any statistics, ah. <laughs> yeah. So like any statistics, they can be um, manipulated into uh, what the people in power kind of want them to be. Mm. And before the time of, of, of proper census and... People were coming and going in and out of London because um, it was a massive port city. We just, yeah. we genuinely don't know. Six seems stupidly low for a whole city yeah. going on fire. Now, if it was just six or less, then that is amazing and credit where credit is due. However, I, being the sceptic that I am, believe that there was probably a lot of unnamed people that were killed or people that probably maybe shouldn't have been where they were like legally all this kind of stuff um uh i mean if you want to compare it to to sort of modern day um if we talk about the grenfell fire that wasn't that long ago so mm. we have the official statistics and then we have the suspected statistics of people that died now, the reason we think that it's lower than it actually is is because a lot of people were living um, in these properties um, under British government illegally. Um, so a lot of people were not declared, a lot of people were not named, um, which is just really sad, <laughs> I think, mm. Um the yeah. the death hole death toll could have been a lot higher than it is and we'll we'll never know for sure so that's kind of my comparison to modern day obviously on a, on a lot yeah. smaller scale um but yeah it's it it destroyed the city destroyed everything um people didn't have houses people didn't have their businesses anymore nothing um but it, it wasn't all doom and gloom, though, right? Like, obviously, the rebuilding process of, of London is kind of the London we see today, right? Like, a lot of the buildings, including, uh, like, St. Paul's and things like that, they were built after the fire. Is that right? Yes. So that leads quite nicely onto uh, talking about the reconstruction of London after, after the fire. So mm. they kind of had a blank canvas, to start again yeah. um famously st paul's 
cathedral, um, which is not the St. Paul's Cathedral that stands now, was burnt down. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, there was there was huge plans to redesign the road layout to make it kind of more in line with Europe, sort of grand streets, classical architecture, like glistening white buildings. And some mm. of that did happen, but not all of it. So yeah. if you... Um, uh, if you look at St. Paul's Cathedral as it stands now, which was designed by Christopher Wren and uh, Regent Street in London, that is the kind of style that we were talking about, um, which the whole of London was kind of going to gonna get. Um, you can also Google plans um, of, of of London. And to be honest, it's, it's pretty impressive. Um, yeah. However, for me, what I love about London is it's such a like chaotic jumble of tiny streets. I'm kind of glad that some of it never happened. Um, yeah. So, mainly, the reason a lot of these plans didn't happen is, well, money. Um, but not only that, a lot of different people owned lots of different bits of land, including different parishes, um and the logistics of trying to buy up all the land from the church, like move people on, etc., was just not financially viable. So most of the original roads, lanes, shambles, etc., were kind of built on, on the same plot that they had been before they'd burnt down. So this is why you get a lot of modern-ish looking buildings, like all sort of higgledy-piggledy, like because it's the same layout as the medieval layout prior to it burning down um yeah which i love yeah. personally yeah um i've i remember going to london and then going to paris not on the same day um, well you could do it in one day <laughs> you could uh, you could actually you could do it in an afternoon yeah anyway um i remember going to to london and then going to paris and and me talking to my girlfriend like look at paris look how different it looks to london look how like weirdly out of place everything looks in London and then it dawned on me that you know tragically Paris and and most of Europe was destroyed all in the same kind of five-year period during the during the second world war so it's all been built relatively at the same time in the modern era whereas London has been built on top of and on top of and on top of itself like you know infinite amount of times you know it's a a Roman settlement, an early medieval settlement, a late medieval settlement, a you know early modern, a modern, a post-war settlement. Like it, it, it's had so many variations. Obviously, places like Paris have as well. But obviously, this is yet another event where cities have been changed again and again and again. And and London has this really weird like. You can kind of look at it in all its different historical contexts. Like you go from the Tower of London which is a, you know, 11th century um, fort. You then, like you said, go down to Oxford Street or Regent Street and you see these grand, like, you know, 17th and 18th century buildings. And then you look over the river and then you've got the Shard, which is, you know, a a 21st century eyesore. So it's, you know, it's a... I'm so glad you said that. I hate that building. It's it's horrible. It's awful, isn't it? Rubbish. Yeah. What a a naff building. It's just a triangle, isn't it? The bloody, yeah. You've got the Tower of London over the over the river, mm. and then you've got that. Like, well, what should we build? Pyramids? They're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about if you just stretch it out loads on Word? 
Just make it really tall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, do that. Should we should we complete it at the top? No, no, no. Don't don't make sure it matches up at the top. Just kind of leave it. Yeah, mint. Mm. I don't like the shard. No, I don't. I'm not a fan. Um, it's a running joke. I call. I mean, I'm gonna swear now, but I call it the shit shard. Like, and every time I see <laughs> it. I um I take a photo of it like doing like a really dodgy pose and I send it to my friend Sarah because she knows I hate it so much. Um, I refuse to go up there purely because I don't like it. Um, I respect that. Yeah, I respect that a lot. There's a lot of architecture in London that's a little bit odd, like the Tate. It's just a slab of concrete. Are we talking the Tate Modern? The Tate Modern. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Just a big block. So like that's it's, it's an old power station. Brutalism. Isn't it? Yeah. Is it that kind of architecture? Yeah, so it's um, an old power station. That's a is... weird place. For someone that's not very arty at all, I found that very strange. Yeah. I mean um, I yeah, I mean I like the building itself because it's sort of Victorian grandeur. But mm. um yeah. I mean, art galleries in general are strange places. I mean, I love them yeah. because I feel like art should be open to everybody. But they, hundred percent, they, um, yeah, they're overtaken by pomp. I think a lot of the time, um, mm. just go and enjoy the art. Like that's what it should be about. No, like, yeah. Anyway, museums are the best in London as well. Like, never been. Talking oh, about there's some great ones. Yeah. Some great ones, um, and the the little quirky ones are the ones that are the best, I think. Um, yeah. So the Jack the Ripper Museum is just it's just strange, but it's great. <laughs> like it's yeah, it's a tiny little oh, well, it's not tiny, but it's like a it's an old townhouse that's kind of been done up as a museum, and you're kind of walking up what would have been somebody's like living room stairs. It's strange. That's cool. Uh, yeah, that's no, cool. it's wicked. It's wicked. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so London kind of got a facelift, but not really <laughs> after this. Cool. So we've we've kind of touched on well, we've talked quite a lot about the kind of really turbulent 1660s. Um, so let's get out of the Great Fire. We've we've rebuilt London, or at least tried to. Where where are we at this point? Who who's king? Where, where are we at? Who's queen? Maybe even. Okay, so uh, Charlie Boy is gone. He died um, later on. He died in 1685. Um, and the throne actually passed wow. to his brother. So it passed to James the Second. Okay, so James the Second. I don't have huge amounts to say about James the Second, um, apart from him being quite unpopular after the Merry Monarch of his brother. He doesn't have a good rep at all, does he? No. So I'm going to sort of glaze over him a little bit. So um, uh, basically he was quite unpopular. He was king. um, And in 1688, a a group of Protestant nobles uh, invited Prince William of Orange to come to England with an army. So... He was basically, so Prince William of Orange uh, was uh, of Denmark. So he was invited over, basically, to overthrow James II by his nobles. So, Mm. William of Orange, I will go into a little bit later on, but um, uh, 
Yeah. William R. Robbins is a massive character in the UK to this day. Yeah. Um, yeah, and as I said, I'll go into that. But um, so William William of Orange was basically he was he was set to invade anyway. He was he was going to invade. He wanted he wanted England, like he wanted it to be his. Uh, long story short, James kind of sort of poo pooed this and said, "Well, no, don't be silly. It's mine to find right of kings, all that jazz." Being a steward. Um but James's daughter was actually married to William of Orange. It's very much in the family here. So it's yeah. basically his brother-in-law, William of Orange, is saying, well, no, me and my wife want your throne and we're going to have it, okay? Regardless of whether you want us to. <laughs> um, and actually, the British public were, were very much in favour of this because... William of Orange uh, was seen to be a, a good prince and it also kept the Stuart line with James's daughter, Mary. So, mm. this was uh, this was known as the Glorious Revolution. Now, a lot of people have heard of that, but they kind of don't know what it means. So, yeah. it was a revolution without the pomp and ceremony, basically. So, James... Uh, the second was given an ultimatum. He was basically told he could leave willingly and live in exile or they would come by force. So he sort of fleed in exile um, and he was allowed to live in exile. There was no um, there was no issues after that. He lived in France for the rest of his life um, and died in France. So um, William and Mary became joint rulers of um, the UK. Sorry, mm. we're not of the UK yet, of Britain. <laughs> um, we're not <laughs> there. Enough. We're nearly, nearly there. there, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so William and Mary were joint monarchs. So they had joint uh, authority um, because it was her line rather than his that was yeah. related to the Stuarts. Although... If you go back a little bit, William is, of course, related to the Stuarts as well. Because why wouldn't he be? That wouldn't be history if it wasn't a close relation. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, So James died in France uh, of a brain hemorrhage. Um, And something I found out that was really bizarre. So James's heart was removed and placed in a silver locket and then buried in some place in France. And then his brain was removed and given to a Scots college in Paris. His entrails were placed in an urn and sent to another church in Paris. And then his flesh from his right arm was given to some nuns who lived in Paris. Oh, I bet they were thrilled. Oh, thanks. An yeah. arm. Thanks, and then, mate. Yeah. And then the rest of his body was built, um, built, sorry, buried uh, just outside of Paris. And it was raided during the um, French Revolution. So, yeah. I, I, I tried to delve deeper into why he was placed in all these places, but hmm, I didn't get any further. So if anyone knows, please... Let me know. Yeah. Um, 
They love they love divvying up bodies though, don't they? Mm. Like, it happens yeah. so many t- more often than you think, more often than it should. Yeah. Well, you say this. I have um, upon my death, I have um, signed my body over to medical science. I've signed it over to oh, wow. the um, Cambridge University. Um, it's all legal. All the documents are signed. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll probably end up here, there and everywhere as well. So, yeah, we'll uh, we'll see. But no one will podcast about me, I'm sure. <laughs> hey, if I'm still kicking, I'll make sure I do a podcast episode. Yeah, you're a few years younger than me. So let's let's hope you can take over the reign. <laughs> um, I will. So, yeah, I just want to talk a little bit about William of Orange. So, mm. William of Orange, for those of us for those of you that don't know um william of orange is kind of seen as a uh protestant figurehead so he's sort of the savior of the protestant um religion he's seen as he kind of ends this sort of battle between catholicism and protestant protestantism it's such a hard word to say say. it's a horrible word to say there's there's Um, so many Overlapping letters, it's not fun. Yeah, it's not easy. Um, So he was seen to be like this champion, um, which caused trouble and still causes trouble to this day. Now, it's mainly Mm. in um, sort of more Celtic countries. So Ireland, Northern Ireland and Wales and Scotland. Um. I'm actually going to do an episode about the Troubles in Ireland later on um, mm. down the line. But the Troubles in Ireland, if people don't know, or in Northern Ireland, sorry, are... Um, uh, they all stem from William of Orange and his sort of overseeing of the Protestant faith and the kind of splitting of, of, of people and... I mean the the troubles were 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 going up until the nineties two thousands. I remember them on telly, and it all stems from this gent. Um, you get your you get the orange marches, which mm. are um, you'll see a lot of people holding um, King Billy flags, which they like to call him, um, sort of marching deliberately into Protestant. Uh, territories along with catholic areas um it's all it's all just a little bit messy but yeah william is 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 still very relevant to this day um in the uk especially um and as i said he's seen as his figurehead i'm going to talk some more about it to someone who lived through the troubles in a later episode but um wow yeah so yeah, really interesting, really interesting guy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, chaos he caused. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, by this we have happening, the, we have the battle of battle of the Boyne in in sixteen ninety, if I'm correct. Yeah, where yeah. William and his Protestant army um, kind of defend themselves or attack a Catholic led um, Jacobite army which is the followers of, of James and the 
Because James comes out as a Catholic, doesn't he? Just bef- I'm not sure, or does he not ever officially? Yeah, I mean, they they're all Catholics, all of them. Yeah. To be honest, uh, they just have to pretend that they're not. Um, that's so strange, isn't it? That that that's a thing that you know. Oh, don't 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 tell anyone, but I'm I'm actually a Catholic. Like that's that's the thing that you had to do. Like, oh, what you. What? You can't be a Catholic, mate. That's that's really bad. Um, but I think in this country anyway, like if you don't, if you're not a history fan or a historian, you, you you're aware of William of Orange. You know he's a Dutch Protestant, and you'll probably know the colour orange. Uh, you've probably have heard of William and Mary, and so it it really is ingrained in, in certainly in English and probably Ang- Anglo-Irish history. Um, William of Orange is is like you said a very very important central character from a religious point of view anyway. And I think that's where um, the the sort of the fraction between Ireland, Northern Ireland, um, and Britain as a whole, although we're the United Kingdom officially, it's really not very united, and it no. is it is all it is all stemming from this period of time. Um, I was actually having a a conversation with. Um, with someone from Scotland yesterday talking about the union and, and why, cause I said, basically I'm really, I obviously I'm fully aware that they're two separate countries, but the idea of Scotland and England specifically being different is very hard for me to comprehend. Obviously I understand the geographical and, and cultural differences and like that, but the fact that it's a completely separate state is very alien. And I kind of boiled it down to the fact that England is a country and the English are very we have this strange superiority complex even though we're part of a union we're not a lead member of a union not to get too political but it's very strange how we have this very Stuart sense of superiority and it definitely extends to the Irish obviously I'm talking about an entirely different country that's not part of the union and Northern Ireland which is and Wales and Wales and all the other kind of areas of the of the United Kingdom and and the the, the Commonwealth, I guess, to a degree as well. Um, but the the treatment of the Irish from from the English is historically terrible. You know, Oliver Cromwell was a notorious bastard to the Irish, to put it politely. Um, as was Henry VIII, as was William the Conqueror. Like it, it goes so far back. But William of Orange is definitely a a kind of catalyst, a touch point for an explosion of problems, I'd say, uh, in Ireland. Yeah, absolutely. And one that is still very present, as I said before. Mm, absolutely. Um, yeah, the United Kingdom is, is not so united. Um, I actually lived in Scotland when they did the um, uh, referendum. Oh, wow, I really? was there, yeah. I was there when it all happened. Um but yeah, it, it's it. I mean, I can see it from both sides. Being a being an Eng, being an English southern gent, but then actually living <laughs> and working alongside my fellow Scotsman. Like I, I get it from all sides. Yeah. Um, so, Likewise. Yeah, I've remained impartial, which is actually not like me. I'm very much um, vocal about my political. Um, I'm exactly views. the same as you on this. Um, I really struggle because I, I would love the union to stay together. I think it's a wonderful thing. And, you know, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, you're all 
equally as important as England, but I totally understand why he'd want to go. Mm. I get it. Yeah. But please stay. <laughs> <laughs> Just so if I can I can if go there <laughs> selfishly. Yeah, because I I like the, the Union Jackson ice flag and yeah, I, yeah, we're all better together. Like just like the EU. Oh wait. Yeah, that's, that, this <sighs> anyway. is not this is not a political <laughs> podcast. We will not go down that no, road. No, it's not. Not at all. Um, Back to the Stuart. So William and Mary uh, are um, reigning together as joint monarchs. They move into Hampton Court Palace. They demolish a lot of uh, Henry's Tudor. Hampton Court Palace, and they rebuild it in the Baroque style. Um, so if you go to Hampton Court Palace, you'll kind of see that there's two very distinct styles there. Um, and it's mainly, the whole the whole Tudor Palace was going to be knocked down, but again, money, they run out of it. So it's kind of a mishmash, which I love. Um, mm. But yeah, it's beautiful. It's if anyone's not been, they should classic. go. Classic. Classic English-British buildings, though, isn't it? Like we were saying earlier about London, it's just this jigsaw of periods that just end up being its own little style. It's uh, it's, it's very cool. Yeah, yeah. So, um, William dies in 1702, mm-hmm. um, and Mary, his wife, has died before him. So... Then it the the throne passes to Mary's sister, who is Queen Anne. Now Queen Anne, I feel, is a very un um represented queen. You don't hear a lot about her, do you? It's not um, I was just about to say I I only know one thing about Anne and that is what I'm sure we will touch on in a minute. But yeah, she's very much similar to Lady Jane Grey, who we talk about in a previous episode. Um very much just forgotten. Mm. Yeah. And she had a tragic life. Like, she was... So all of her courtiers and stuff said that she was actually... She was she was quite fun. Uh, she was uh, nice to be around everyone. Like, she made people feel good about themselves. But kind of underneath all of that, she was suffering most of her life from chronic illness chronic pain mm. um she would never show it to her uh t- to court or or the country um uh this is I mean, again what you've probably heard of so she tragically had 18 pregnancies only one of them wow. survived past infancy but he died when he was 11 so all of her Awful. children had died uh, eight, all eighteen of them, which is horrendous. That's tragic. Yeah, it's beyond tragic. That's um, that's horrible. So she was said in modern sort of terms. I mean, I don't know what the medical term is is for it, but there's a there's a disease or an illness where um, if there's any foreign bodies like in your body, if you've got this illness, your body will fight against it. So a baby has no hope really of surviving because your body mm. kind of attacks itself um That's awful mm. and it, apparently it's, it's relatively common but um yeah so 18 pregnancies um really sad <laughs> um Very sad. yeah really really sad um 
So she, uh, she she was dealing with all of this grief and this this all this stuff that was going on. Um, her surgeons were said to have sort of messed her body up so much when they tried to sort of hack her to get babies out that were stuck and all this kind of stuff that actually eventually oh that's that's what what killed her. Um, but she reigned from 1707 to her death in 1714. Going back to the Acts of Union, she was the first queen to ever rule as a sovereign of Great Britain and the UK as we know it now. So that was implemented under her. So why we don't know more about her, I don't know. Because that's quite a big thing to happen. She's like Alfred the Great level of unification, more so than Alfred the Great, who didn't actually ever achieve his his goal of a united Anglo-Saxon England. But Mm -hmm. yeah, that's the only thing I know about Anne is the fact that she was, you know, responsible for the United Kingdoms of of at least of Scotland and England and at the time Ireland. Yeah, it was definitely Scotland and England. I'm not yeah, sure no, how, it was. How yeah, fact at this point. Yeah, um, it was. But um, yeah, what a, what a tragic end to to the Stuarts, really. At this point, isn't it? It's mm. obviously we've got the kind of the, the partial House of Orange that you could kind of throw in the mix, but it's still very Stuart. And after Anne, how do we how do we progress from here then? So obviously Anne had no children, no surviving children. Mm. So they uh, they go back up the line. Um, so they trace it back from Anne up to her father, James II, up to his father, Charles I, up to his father, James I. And James I's daughter, Elizabeth, uh, they trace it down that line. So Elizabeth goes into Sophia, uh, which then goes into the House of Hanover, which is where mm. we then get George the First. So it's quite a roundabout way of getting to the Georgian period and the House of yeah. Hanover. Um, but there is a relation there. It's just very distant. Very um, distant. And am I am I right in thinking that the reason? for this very distant relative, not just for the fact that there wasn't many of them left, is religion, as again, is yeah. playing a factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could possibly have a um, Protestant, uh, sorry, a Catholic on the throne. Heaven forbid. Mm. So it to go back, 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 across, down, down, down to George the I. Because um, there, was, there was another Charlie boy kicking at this time, wasn't there? Um... Possibly, because <laughs> um, the 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 James the Second line was still. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So the um, yeah, so there was uh, the old pretender, which is James, mm. and then he had his son, um, that was the young pretender, so Charles Edward, um. So yeah, and there that's was Bonnie Prince Charles mm-hmm. or Bonnie Prince Charlie. Yeah, isn't it? so there was again not somebody I know too much about, but yeah, I know his name. Yeah, so there was someone kicking around um, Charles Edward, but he, yeah, he he was he was not the he didn't fit the mold, so he was not in the line of succession. So 
uh, in the Georgian times, you get like 20 million Georges. Um, <laughs> and then you get our Queen Victoria, who was the last of the Hanover line. So, mm. yeah, that's that's kind of the Stuarts. So it ended on a bit of a tragic note, I guess, with Anne. Mm. Um, but the whole the whole house of Stuart was plagued with tragedy. Um, yeah. From 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 James being um, uh, homosexual, not being able to kind of do what he he wanted, uh, to Charles the first losing his head, um, and so on and so forth. I mean, it was just yeah, chaos really. But absolutely, and to to say it was only what a hundred and say let's have 115 years of of rule in England. Obviously, I know the Stuarts extend way back in Scotland, mm. um, but it was a very, very short period of, yeah. of um, the Stuart kind of um, royal line in England anyway, and so many things happened, mm. so, so many from, big events in history. Yeah, 1603 to 1714, so yeah, it's, yeah, so many uh, things that still sort of plague us, Excuse the wording. Mm. Um, to this, <laughs> to this day, um, yeah, which is mad. But I mean, as I said, I didn't realise that I liked the Stuarts as much as I did until I started researching them. Um, I, 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 my my preference is probably the first half of the Stuart yeah. period, um, where you've got the son of Mary Queen of Scots and then you've got Charles losing his head and Guy Fawkes. I love all that. I love all that gunpowder plot potential yeah. stuff that was going on. Um, yeah. And the end of the Stuart period, I just find quite tragic, <laughs> like quite um, really tragic. Yeah. Could yeah. just quite sad horrendous. more than anything else. Um, mm. But yeah, so that's, that's the Stuarts. Now, I've got some questions for you. <laughs> I hope you've been listening. You're going to quiz me, aren't you? I am going to quiz you. Don't worry. Do you know what? I've They're def- easy. They're easy. <laughs> you say this now. It's fine. Well, okay. Let, let's go. Go for it. Go for so, it. how did Lord Darnley die? So, Lord Darnley is James I's dad. So, um, Henry Lord Darnley um, was... Apparently, this is all kind of rumor mill, mm-hmm. but as far as I know, he was probably strangled to death, and then the house he was in was blown up or happened to explode by uh, coincidence. Yes, tick, yes. tick, tick, tick. One for um, one. One for one. Uh, so, how did Mary, Queen of Scots, die? Uh, she was beheaded in a red dress because she was a Catholic martyr. Yes, that's two ticks. I love for the you. red dress. Yeah. The red dress scene in, in the Mary Queen of Scots film is, I didn't think was historically accurate, but it is. And that's yeah, really, no, it is. Really cool. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably one of the only things that is historically accurate. <laughs> yeah. um, I like that film, though. I'm going to put it out there. It's a good film. We'll review it one day, I'm sure. Well, it's um, on the list. It's, it's on, on the list. list. <laughs> so what religion was Guy Fawkes when he was born? He was born a Protestant, which is something you genuinely taught me. Tick. Um, yes. Who was the Lord Protector? 
Um, so the Lord Protector was Oliver Cromwell, and then it briefly passed to his son, Richard Cromwell. Correct. Uh, what year did the plague start and end? Uh, it started in 1665 and ended in 1666. Not because of the Great Fire of London. Perfect. Right, one more. How many children did Queen Anne have? So she had 18 pregnancies. Unfortunately, only one of them survived through infancy and died at 11. I am impressed. So you have got four marks there. Well done. Congrats. My teachers will be proud because I never really got full marks on anything. Well, there you have. You have it here. The School of Ollie. I'll um, I'll send you your certificate. That's it is. Yes. (laughs) You can add that to your uh, degree. Um, Yeah. Do it. Do it, do it. Well, I've really enjoyed that. Um, I hope it's been enjoyable for everybody at home. Um, It's... With any royal family line, there are a million names that are the same. The best way that I find of doing it is getting a family tree in front of you. That's the best way yes. of how to work work your way down and across of, of the royal family tree. Um, and not just in the UK, but in um, other countries as well. Um, you'll probably realise that they're all related. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's that time again. And I know you did a little bit of plugging earlier, but... Hey, let's plug again. Plug away. Plug away. That's me. Um, so yes, um, you can find me personally on Instagram at Chris Riley underscore. Um, it's like ninety percent history, ten percent my regular life. Um, and you can also find the History Corner uh, at the History Corner blog on Instagram or um, the History Corner um, dot org, uh, the actual website itself. Um, we are always looking for people to contribute. Um, so if that is the kind of thing that floats your boat, you want to be part of the History Corner, drop me a DM on Instagram, or you can email us at thehistorycorneinfo uh, at gmail.com, um, where you can submit article ideas, review ideas, um, brand new topic ideas that we've never even thought of before. Um, Ollie has written several wicked articles for us, one on the Stuarts, so if you just can't get enough of the Stuarts, um, Ollie has written a wonderful article on them being completely underrated, which after this, I, I tend to agree. Uh, and also one about Victoria and her drug addict, a drug addiction, which is uh, completely, was completely new to me before reading. So uh, I, I highly recommend you checking all that out. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you very much for having me again. No, thanks. It's been wicked. And um, it has. We are going to. Oh, no, that's something that I wanted to say. Um, so, Chris, you won't hear this now, but you'll hear this when the episode is released. I've um, I found a, uh, a piece of music from this time, which is entitled Chocolate. And it's the best piece of music that I've found from this period of time. So I'm going to I'm gonna add it at the end of this episode. And I really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Because it's just a I bit of... I look forward to chocolate. It's just a bit of fun. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yes, enjoy chocolate. Goodbye. I will. Thanks, bye. Doctors lay by your irksome books And all the pettifogging rooks Leave quacking and enunciate The virtues of the chocolate 
Let the universal medicine made up of dead men's bones and skin be henceforth illegitimate and yield to sovereign chocolate. Tell us no more of weapons salve, but rather doom us to a grave. For sure our wounds will ulcerate unless they're washed with chocolate. Young heirs that have more land than wit, when once they do a taste of it, will rather spend their whole estate than wean it be from chocolate. The nut-brown lasses of the land, whom nature failed in face and hand, are quickly beauties of high rate by one small draught of chocolate. Besides, it saves the money's lost each day in patches, which did cost them dear until late. They found this heavenly chocolate. Nor need the women longer grieve, who spend their oil, yet not conceive, but it's helped immediately such a lick of chocolate. Consumptions, too, be well assured, are no less soon than soundly cured, excepting such as related to the purse, by chocolate. Nay more, its virtue is so much, that if a lady gets a touch, her grief it will extenuate if she but smell of chocolate. The feeble man whom nature ties to do his mistress's drudgeries, oh how it will his mind elate if she but allow him chocolate. Twill make old women young and fresh, create new notions of the flesh, and make them long for you know what, if they but taste of chocolate. There's ne'er a common council man Whose life would reach unto a span Should he not well affect the state And first and last drink chocolate